Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and you're listening to Words on Film on WBCALP Boston. I will be reviewing some of the newest movies out right now. For this show, I have four movies to review for you. Three are relatively new. I think two of them are brand new in theaters this past week. One of them, which I'm actually going to review first, came out in theaters six months ago. And I saw it around the time it came out, but I think I had so many movies to review back then that I didn't actually get a chance to get to reviewing this, but I'm doing it for two reasons. Number one, I don't like to leave movies behind. And number two, this movie was actually re-released into theaters, and I'm probably actually going to see it again in theaters, which might give away how I felt about it. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is X. This is a film that is directed by and written by Ty West. And Ty West has been directing films for quite some time. He's a director from Delaware. He has previously directed films like The Roost, The House of the Devil, the latter of which was his breakout um, movie as a director, The Innkeepers, and The Sacrament. And X is the very first movie that I saw from him. And very much like Eli Roth and a number of other horror directors, Ty West doesn't just direct horror films. He also directs horror films with a bit of nostalgia to them. And X is very reminiscent of slasher horror films from the 70s. And I was especially reminded of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre when I saw this film. I was reminded a little bit of I Spit on Your Grave, too, but... I Spit on Your Grave was a pretty bad film, whereas The Texas Chainsaw Massacre was made for a minuscule budget, and it still scares the hell out of me to this day. And I read somewhere that the actresses in The Texas Chainsaw Massacre had laryngitis after shooting for a day, and given how much they screamed in that movie, it's really not hard to see why. I would imagine that the actors in this film also experienced the same kind of fate. But the movie, even though it was filmed in 2021-2022, is actually takes place in 1979. And it involves a group of young filmmakers who set out to make an adult film in rural Texas, which was also where the Texas Chainsaw Massacre took place. So it's obviously a little bit of a tribute to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but not a ripoff or anything like that. However... They go to a farmhouse in rural Texas that is run by two reclusive elderly hosts who catch these filmmakers in the act, and by in the act I mean having sex on film, and the cast, not to mention the crew, find themselves fighting for their lives. And the cast of this movie is actually pretty interesting. Uh, The main lead in this movie is an aspiring pornographic actress named Maxine Minx, known colloquially as Max, and she's played by Mia Goth. And Mia Goth is a British actress who owns this movie uh, very much. And not only does she play the role of the aspiring pornographic actress Max, she also plays the role of the elderly host Pearl. And this was only brought to my attention After I saw the movie, as I was watching the credits roll and I saw that Mia Goth played both Max and Pearl, I honestly didn't know when I was seeing the film because as an elderly woman, the makeup on Mia Goth was amazing. And what's even more amazing is the fact that this movie was shot on a budget of just a million dollars. So they probably didn't have the kind of budget that other bigger films, especially science fiction films had for uh, makeup, but it's quite incredible how the whole film reportedly cost about a million dollars, and yet the makeup on Mia Goth when she played the elderly Pearl was that good. There are also some other actors and actresses in this film who play pornographic actors and actresses in this movie as well. There's Jenna Ortega, who plays the part of Lorraine, There's Brittany Snow, who plays Bobby Lynn, who's not only very attractive, but also a down-home Southern girl. The only inaccuracy about Brittany Snow being in the movie is that Brittany Snow is a very attractive woman, and let's be honest, 
a lot of the actors in pornographic films of the 70s were not particularly attractive. Maybe Marilyn Chambers was the exception to that rule, but yeah, the rest of them were just hard enough to look at with their clothes on, let alone with their clothes off. But I think as the pornographic industry was burgeoning in the 70s and pornographic filmmakers were actually actually had the ambition not to make just reels that people could go into theaters in raincoats and, well, not only watch that but do other things, which I won't get into right now, but you could probably figure that out for yourself. The ambition of some of these filmmakers were high, even though the budgets were low, which kind of has the same sort of thing in common with horror films of the 70s as well. There was a low-budget horror revolution that I think acts very um, honorably duplicates, if you can say that. And in addition to that, there's also the the actor Scott Mescudi, who plays an, uh, a pornographic actor with a very interesting stage name, Jackson Hole, which is probably the, the character used that trick where you take your middle name and also the street on which you grew up, and that was your porn name. My porn name would be Joseph Grove, which actually, I don't know, doesn't exactly sound like a, a, a film that sc- or a, a name that screams pornography, but it sounds pretty cool. So maybe it, it would be a pornographic name, but rest assured, I don't have that ambition. But back in the 70s, <laughs> there were legitimate actors who didn't go out to aspire to be in porn, but found themselves in porn anyway. And it was only in the 80s when porn- pornography became relegated to home video as opposed to being um, in theaters that pornography began to have more of a stigma. It it still had a stigma in the 70s, but not as much as it did when it became more homogenized and pre-processed, which it still is to this day. However, now that videotape and for the the most part, DVD, Blu-ray, 4K, have kind of taken a backseat to streaming, and there's sites like Pornhub where you can get your pornography at a discounted price. Not that I would know anything about that. Porn is not as lucrative now as it was even about 10 years ago, but again, different time, different story, but I got to give it to Ty West. He makes this film look like it was shot in the seventies, not just that it took place in the seventies. It might've been the, the low budget, which got him to cut back on some of the the gloss that this film might otherwise have had. But honestly, the person who did the makeup for Mia Goth, where she played the older matriarch of this rural Texan farm, has got to get some sort of recognition and not just from the Fangoria Awards. But in addition to this film being well-acted and also looking like it came out of the 70s and one of those films that you would see in a grindhouse theater around Times Square. It also is legitimately scary. There are a few slow parts here and there, but overall, I really enjoyed X. And while I didn't know quite what to make of it when I first saw it, it's grown on me and I haven't forgotten it. And it gets my rating of a knockout. It certainly is very scary and also serves as a really great tribute to a lot of those balls-to-the-wall scary slasher films from the 70s that are decent when you watch them at home, but when you actually get into a theater to see them, it is quite amazing. And see the movie X in a theater if you can, because it is well worth it. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. 
The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Pearl. This is a movie that premiered at the 79th Venice International Film Festival on September 3rd and was released in theaters nationwide in the United States on September 16th, 2022. Like the movie that came before it, X, Pearl is released by A24, which has done a really impressive job over the last couple of years releasing some very noteworthy independent movies. X, as I said, is one of those films, and Pearl was released the exact same year. So Pearl fills in a lot of the narrative blanks of the movie X, specifically of the character Pearl, who was played in the movie X by Mia Goth. And Mia Goth reprises her role in this movie, albeit with far less makeup. She's made up to look like just a normal woman in her late 20s, but not certainly a woman in her 70s or 80s like she played in the movie X. But the movie Pearl takes place not in the 70s, but in 1918. This was the final year of World War I. It was also a year where a very dangerous flu pandemic was going all around the world. So you had two major cataclysmic events at once, which may have driven Pearl in this movie to become the vicious killer that she became in X. And I didn't give away a lot of what the character Pearl did in the movie X, mainly because it is quite surprising, but it's actually not quite as creepy when she's killing people as much as she is doing other things. But the movie Pearl gives you a glimpse of what drove Pearl to madness. And I do think that Mia Goth, as good as she is in the movie X, where she played both Max and Pearl, I think she's actually even better an actress in this film. And it's not just the blood and guts in this film that makes it great. It's also a lot of the dramatic acting because in this movie, Pearl is living on her family farm in Texas during the height of, as I said, the Spanish flu pandemic and World War II. And she's living with her German immigrant parents on their homestead. Her mother, who's played by Tandy Wright, is very strict. And her father, played by Matthew Sunderland, is catatonic. So she has to care for her ailing father and also meet the demands of her domineering mother. And you can see just based on her home life and also her secluded living in on this farm in rural Texas and the fact that she doesn't have very many friends, how she would be driven to madness like she does. And she has ambitions to leave her Texas farm and become a dancer in Hollywood. And she gets the opportunity to go to an audition that's held at a local church in the nearest town where she lives. And you feel for her as she is exercising her ambitions, but you kind of know if you've seen the movie X, how this is going to end. But you're you're not quite sure whether or not you want to root for Mia Goth or even empathize with her. Hopefully you don't empathize, and maybe you might feel bad for sympathizing with her as well. But as the movie progresses, you see Pearl deal with her living on this farm. And her actions, especially towards the end of the film, are not particularly condonable. But as the movie begins, it's obvious that Ty West, who directed this film as well as the movie X, is taking a lot of his inspiration from films from the 20s and 30s, especially the way that the opening credits appear. And also, I think there was a little bit of inspiration here, undoubtedly, from The Wizard of Oz. But rest assured, it doesn't exactly end like The Wizard of Oz either. There isn't a a happy ending, rest assured. But... The ending is still very fascinating, and also it might pay a little bit of tribute to some of the films that were too hot for the censors board in the 20s and 30s, but were still 
filmed anyway. As a matter of fact, there's one love interest that Pearl has in this in this movie who's a projectionist who's played by David Corinsweat, who shows Pearl some of the films on which he's been working, which equal the kind of ambition that the filmmakers in X had when they were making their pornographic movies. But it was a pornographic movie in the late 1910s, so you know it wasn't up to the same kind of quality that the 70s pornographic films were. And the 70s pornographic films were of pretty low quality, but at least they were in color, and at least they had more than one camera, not to mention sound. But it all kind of ties into Pearl as a character in both this film and the movie X. And I think probably one of my biggest takeaways from the movie X was I felt like the people who were running the farm in rural Texas in X were underdeveloped. But what X lacked in development of those characters, Pearl definitely made up for. And as I watched the film Pearl, not only did I think it was very well done, as well as a tribute to the early days of cinema, even though the movie is in color, all the other kind of techniques with the rolling of the credits, as well as the camera angles of some of the shots were certainly in tribute to some of those films way early on in the early, more archaic days of cinema. But it also makes a very good companion piece to the movie X. What would I suggest you see first? I don't exactly know, because Pearl is a prequel to X, but it was made back-to-back. As soon as X was completed filming, Ty West, to his credit, went right to filming this movie. And I think it goes very well with the movie X, which is why I I think actually, which one do do I like better? I think I actually like Pearl better because X was a bit more predictable in terms of what was going to be going on in the film. But Pearl, I thought was, had some predictable moments here and there, but overall the way it ended was dynamite. And I'm not going to give away what happens at the end because words on film has a rule about no spoilers. I will tell you though, that Pearl gets my rating of a knockout. It's not completely bloody, but I think it tells actually a better story than X does. And it also has more original characters as well as ones for whom you might feel sympathetic, but you also might feel bad about yourself for being sympathetic for these characters. But it makes me even more excited for the sequel that's going to come out to both Pearl and X, and the movie is titled Maxine. And Maxine has three X's in it. Right now that movie's in production, but honestly, I can't wait to see it based on the movies X and Pearl. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Clerks 3, and this is a film that had its world premiere on September 4th, 2022 in Red Bank, New Jersey, before its limited release on September 13th by Lionsgate. And by limited release, I mean that not only did certain theaters have it, but it was also shown in conjunction with Fathom Events. And for those of you who don't aren't really familiar with Fathom Events, Fathom Events shows limited screenings of usually classic movies or operas or sporting events or other things. And Clerks 3 might have been better to be to have been released in theaters, but I paid the extra $10 to see this movie anyway. And of course it is a sequel to the 1994 film Clerks, which made its debut at the Sundance Film Festival that year and went on to develop a cult following. And it had such a strong following that it uh, Kevin Smith created a sequel to it in 2006, which was called, get ready for this, Clerks 2. 
It, now, the 1994 movie was filmed in black and white largely because Kevin Smith couldn't afford, at the time, color film. And it actually worked out really well because Clerks, when it was filmed in black and white, kind of looked like it was filmed on security cameras, which I thought had a really neat effect. And I didn't really appreciate the first Clerks when I first saw it, mainly because I saw it on videotape and I was on drugs when I saw it. I was literally on drugs because I was recovering from surgery. So I didn't appreciate it the first time, but then I saw it again and I really appreciated it for what it was, but clerks too, I wasn't exactly crazy about, I thought it had some moments of brilliance, but then there were other moments where it felt like they were going for cheap laughs. For example, there's one climactic scene in clerks Two where a man has sex with a donkey and no, I am not making that up. So I thought that was a little too far fetched, but clerks three goes sort of back to the roots of what made the original clerks special. And we are reintroduced to the relatively unambitious convenience store clerks who are played by Brian O'Halloran, who plays Dante, and Jeff Anderson, who plays Randall. But you also have Jason Mewes and Kevin Smith reprising their roles as Jay and Silent Bob, respectively. Elias is a minor character who is a bit of a Jesus freak, and ultimately... Dante, Elias, and Jan Silent Bob are enlisted by Randall, who, after a heart attack, has the ambition to make a movie about a convenience store that started it all. So Randall, who is at this point in his late 40s, and while he is still working at the Quick Stop convenience store in Leonardo, New Jersey, he is part owner of this convenience store along with Dante, and... When he has this heart attack, he wants to do something ambitious before he maybe kicks the bucket. He's not close to death, but once you have a heart attack, it's yeah, it's a life changer. I don't know because I haven't had a heart attack yet. I hope it's a long, long time before I have a heart attack, but you never really know. All I'm saying is just take care of, uh, take care of yourself out there, but... Clerks 3, under the plot of Randall making this film, which is essentially Clerks, but he calls it Inconvenience, which actually would have been a neat name for Clerks, but I guess you can't really go back and change that now. <clears throat> it, As a comedy, it's sort of hit or miss. I think there that there were some gags that worked and some that didn't. The character of Elias, I didn't really like. At first, he comes off as a bit of a Jesus freak. And eventually, when he prays to God to actually smite Randall for being relatively unenthusiastic about religion and more, I, I think he might even be atheist, not just agnostic. But after he prays to God to smite Randall, that's when Randall has a heart attack. But unfortunately... Elias, who's played by Trevor Fairman, um, just for the record, become has this running gag where he becomes a Satanist and he starts to dress in more and more gothic clothing. And he also has another companion with him who doesn't say anything. In fact, Kevin Smith as Silent Bob ironically says more than this other guy does. And I'm I saw this character and I thought. We already have one Silent Bob. We don't really need two. But, and I just found the character relatively obnoxious. I did like the, the gags of Jay and Silent Bob, as usual. And it is kind of interesting because Jay, the Jason Mewes, who plays Jay, is also in his late 40s. But it's almost like nothing has changed with him since 1994. He, I mean, he probably is living some sort of life where he's able to look as young as he does. And that's actually pretty impressive, even though the character of Jay is one that you wouldn't want to emulate. But a lot has changed since 1994. For example, in 1994, marijuana was, or distribution of marijuana was illegal. It was just as illegal as other drugs that actually killed you. Now that's changed, but Jay and Silent Bob are still selling in front of the quick stop almost as if it's still illegal to sell marijuana 
one of the things that I'm so happy has changed since 1994. But some of the gags, as I said, the ones with Jay and Silent Bob almost always worked. The ones with the character of Elias and that silent other Jesus freak who becomes a Satan freak of his didn't really work for me. There were also several cameos in the film, uh, some of which worked, some of which didn't. For example, uh, there were some funny cameos by Sarah Michelle Gellar, Freddie Prinze Jr., Justin Long, Fred Armisen, Bobby Moynihan, and Danny Trejo, which were very funny. There was one cameo by Ben Affleck, who you'd kind of expect, considering that Kevin Smith is largely responsible for Ben Affleck being the A-lister that he is today. But Ben Affleck's cameo went on for way too long. He played a character by the name of Boston John, and his, I don't know, it would have been fine if it was a 30-second cameo, but, he, but his cameo lasted for about two minutes. And every time Ben Affleck was on screen, it just lasted way, way, way too long. But I was actually more impressed by Brian O'Halloran, who plays Dante, the central, probably most sympathetic character in this film. And he's the straight man to Randall's sort of laid back, equally unambitious, funny man. But Brian O'Halloran, who hasn't done too much acting other than playing the role of Dante, not only in the Three Clerks films, but in other Kevin Smith-directed films as well, has some surprisingly dramatic moments in this film as well, especially when his love interest and later fiancé, Becky, who's played by Rosario Dawson in Clerks 2, probably one of the best things about the second Clerks movie, actually dies in between Clerks 2 and Clerks 3. And no, that's not spoiling anything. And Rosario Dawson does appear in this movie in several parts, but it's more as a clairvoyant spirit for Brian O'Halloran. And the parts where Brian O'Halloran is actually grieving the death of Becky are really genuine. And there's one sort of tour de force part at the end where Brian O'Halloran is ranting about how unfair life is, not to mention how he's still grieving the death of Becky as well as other people in his life. And it was really powerful for a guy who didn't have to act very much in the original Clerks other than just basically playing himself, I would imagine. But I was very impressed by Brian O'Halloran in this movie um, primarily, and I left the film feeling like Clerks had a great send-off. I hope there isn't a Clerks 4, or if there is one, I would hope that the characters who are working at the Quick Stop convenience store would at least do something a little bit more ambitious. Like, for example, opening one other Quick Stop store somewhere else in New Jersey. Because I feel like fate should be at least a little bit kinder to them, but hopefully fate doesn't make them be less funny. But Clerks 3 gets my rating of a checkout because I do think with a lot of the original cast of the first two Clerks films, as well as several other characters in the View Askewniverse, which is View Askew is Kevin Smith's production company, which also has a cult following. I would imagine that it's it's a good send-off. It's not nearly as good as the original Clerks film, but Kevin Smith, I think, had a better closing chapter for the characters of Clerks than he did in Clerks 2. But not all the gags hit particularly well. Some of the cameos, like the one of Ben Affleck, lasted a little too long, but other cameos hit the spot. But there were still other moments where I enjoyed the film. I was very impressed by the acting as well as the writing of the dialogue. So I think Kevin Smith is on the upward trajectory after a slow period of directing relatively mediocre comedies.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Honor Society. And this is a film that I came to a bit late. It premiered on Paramount Plus on July 29th, 2022, and is still on Paramount Plus to this day. So if you feel like checking out Paramount Plus or subscribing to it, I do recommend you check out this film as well as Beavis and Butthead Do the Universe. Beavis and Butthead Do the Universe was a pretty brilliant film as well as a worthy sequel to Beavis and Butthead Do America. But Honor Society is one of those films that may go a little bit under the radar, but it is a very ambitious high school film. Although it is about a character who is very easy to dislike when you first meet her. The title character is a movie as is, is the title character in this movie is a woman, a, a senior in high school, whose name is Honor Rose. And Honor Rose is played by Angaree Rice. She lives in the suburbs, and even though you wouldn't know that from speaking to her or seeing the clothes she wears, she comes from a lower middle class family. But she has all the entitled um, self-love that you would expect from probably somebody who is upper middle class to wealthy. Although in this film, it seems a bit more like a defense mechanism for the character of honor and honor has two friends who are popular girls. There's Emma who's played by Avery Conrad and Talia who's played by Kelsey Mawima. And she's not so much friends with them as much as she uses them for leverage, but honor being um, the entitled girl that she is, does very well in school, but she aspires to go to Harvard. And the school to which she goes is George H.W. Bush High School, which looks more like a typical high school in a small, relatively poor town than I would say any school that I've seen in most high school movies would look. Although it's not specified in what geographic region George H.W. Bush High School would be. Based on the fact that it's, that it's named after the first Bush and Bush was that Bush was raised in Texas, you might assume that the movie takes place in Texas, but the movie never exactly says or gives you any clues. But Honor aspires to leave her humdrum middle-class existence and go on to become an undergraduate at Harvard. And the chances of getting into Harvard are even more than they were when I was in high school. And if you're wondering, yes, I did apply to Harvard and no, I did not get in, but I, at least I shot for the moon and missed. But when I was in high school, the chances of getting into Harvard were about 9%. Nowadays, I think with more ambitious Gen, y, uh, Gen Z uh, students, it's now along the lines of 4.6%. I think that's probably about the same for most other Ivy League schools as well. But even some of the prestigious schools that aren't Ivy League, like, for example, Colgate, William & Mary, Middlebury, Vanderbilt, Stanford, all the rest, they probably are not that much higher percentage of getting in. Yeah, getting into college is quite hard these days, and I don't envy high school students who are going that trek. But the character of Honor is consulting with her guidance counselor, Mr. Calvin, who's played by Christopher McLovin Mintz-Plasse. And Christopher Mintz-Plasse is probably overcoming that stigma of having played McLovin or at least being typecast as the ambitious nerd. And he kind of plays an ambitious nerd here, albeit one who's in his late 30s and is still trying a little bit too hard to be in touch with his high school um, students. But anyway, Mr. Calvin informs Honor that she is one out of four students whom he would recommend to somebody he knows uh, who is a very influential student who is a Harvard alum. And that's not good enough for Honor. She wants to bring down the other three students who are also within that 
talent pool of Mr. Calvin's. There's the very smart, popular, and ambitious lacrosse jock Travis Biggins, who's played by Armani Jackson. There is the highly introverted, probably on the autism spectrum, Kennedy Smith, who's played by Amy Kume. And there's also the very smart and aloof Michael Dip- Dipnicki, who's played by Gatton Matarazzo. And while that name may not s- sound familiar to you, Gatton Matarazzo is best known for playing the role of the unpopular but smart Dustin Henderson in Stranger Things. And in Stranger Things, he looked like a kid from the 80s. Here, I don't know if he looks exactly like a Gen Z uh, student, but I think maybe since he now has his front teeth in, he looks more like a, a student of this era. But either way, it's good to see him kind of branch out from Stranger Things and maybe get typecast for a while as an unpopular high school student, but at least he's playing to his strengths. And I think he's actually one of the best actors in this film. I also really liked Angry Rice as Honor because at first, you know she's ambitious to a fault and you also know she would take out a knife and stab in the back anyone who gets in her way of going to Harvard. For that reason, I hated that character, but I didn't hate Angry Rice for playing that character. And I think the movie tells a strong story with very strong and sometimes sympathetic characters that make you maybe not root for the character of Honor, but you're certainly interested in seeing where she's going and what she might learn from her experiences, if anything, as the film progresses. But this movie, I it felt very authentically like high school to me. And I had a lot of very angry feelings as I was watching this film because I'm so glad high school is over. For me, high school wasn't terrible, but I certainly had some terrible moments. And regardless of whether or not you're ambitious, whether or not you're talented, high school is hard on just about everyone. It's just a matter of everyone gets sort of their own little package about how hard high school is for them. And I think this movie displays that very perfectly. And while it does take some obvious influence from some of the John Hughes movies, and I was reminded both of Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which is a John Hughes film, and Election, which is not a John Hughes film, um, I, I was I would compare this movie favorably to some of those more original high school movies because it takes some inspiration from them, but also branches out to become more original in and of themselves. And there were some moments, probably the least predictable moments, who also happened to be the funniest. There was one scene that I thought didn't deserve to be in that, uh, be in this movie, and it was where the character of Mr. Calvin actually hits on one of his high school students. I didn't think that was necessary in the movie. I didn't think the movie exactly needed that. And the way that sort of subplot resolved itself was not very satisfying. But that was one minor gripe that I had with the movie Honor Society. Other than that, it gets my rating of a knockout because as the movie progressed, I did not like the character of Honor Rose. And But I was still interested in seeing where her journey would take her and if she would learn from this journey. But movies that have unlikable uh, protagonists are not necessarily bad films. What worked about this film is the set design that made it look like a real high school, how virtually all the major characters had dimensions to them, not just the high school students, but also some of the faculty as well as Honor Rose's parents. And what also really worked here is the heart of the film. It gets into why high school sucks. It gets sort of into the nitty gritty of how high school is so complex. It's not really good for anyone, but you just get through it anyway. And I think that this movie demonstrates that or these points a lot better than some other more glossy high school films, which is why I recommend Honor Society very much.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters between September 19th and September 23rd, 2022. I'm going to get into the movies that are subject to being released in theaters first, and I will get into all the films that are going to be released in on streaming for which I have time to give you. But on Tuesday, September 20th, there's a movie that is likely to be released in theaters in very limited release, and the movie is called Nova. It's a movie about uh, a mission to set up a robot colony on Mars where android officer Nova is caught between her human crewmates and her own kind when a mutiny erupts during the flight. I don't know what her own kind would be besides the human crewmates, but I'm very interested to to uh, see how this film develops, although I can't guarantee that I'm going to see the film. The movie stars Skeeta Jenkins, Chase Pollock, Cy Pena, Sky Strack, Juliet Chevel, and Dakota Millett. If you recognize any of these names, then, well, good for you. I don't recognize any of them, but if this is a film that I will see, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on September 22nd, which is a Thursday, is a movie that's called Smile. And Smile is, I think, being released in limited release on September 22nd. It's being released in wide release on September 30th. So I am very torn about this film because it looks scary. And I haven't seen any previews for it because I have given myself a preview cleanse. But one thing I will say is there are certain movies where I want to go to YouTube and I want to look up the official trailer and I just want to see what the trailer is. But I've seen posters of this film and it is uh, unsettling just from seeing those posters. You don't have to tell me that smiles are creepy. I guess it really depends on who is smiling and also maybe what their eyes look like. Cause that makes a big difference, but it's the reason I'm a, I'm afraid of clowns as well as the music video for the sound garden song, black hole sun. These things scare the ever living bejesus daylights out of me. And it's likely that smile will too. However, I won't divulge on the plot of this film yet. I'll wait until next week, but it's unlikely that I will be seeing that, but I'll probably review it for you on September or rather my next show after the one I do next week. But on September 23rd, there are several movies that are coming out in theaters. One of them is a film that's called don't worry, darling. This is a film that stars Harry styles, who is the hottest uh, commodity in the music industry right now. He's gone on to such a successful solo career that actually puts Justin Timberlake's solo career to shame already, and that's saying a lot. But Don't Worry Darling is a film about a 1950s housewife, presumably in the United States, living with her husband in a utopian experimental community who begins to worry that his glamorous company could be hiding disturbing secrets. The movie is directed by Olivia Wilde, who has proven herself to be a good director. She she directed a very good sort of post-high school coming-of-age movie back in 2019 called Booksmart, which I really, really liked. And this film could be her breakout role. The stars in this movie include, as I said, Harry Styles, Florence Pugh uh, from... Midsummer and the recent incantation of Little Women has the starring role as the housewife Alice Chambers. Olivia Wilde also co-stars in this film. And also co-starring in this film includes Chris Pine, Gemma Chan, Nick Kroll, Timothy Simons, and Dita Von Teese, amongst other people. Dita Von Teese actually plays herself, interestingly enough. I don't know where they're exactly going with that, but... Don't Worry Darling is a film that looks very interesting. It's a film that I imagine that I will see, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show if I do see it. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on Friday, uh, September 23rd, 
is the Railway Children Return. I don't know if there was a film before this that's called The Railway Children, but I imagine that there would be because The Railway Children Return sounds like a sequel. But again, I can't divulge upon that. But this movie follows a group of children who are evacuated to a Yorkshire village during the Second World War where they encounter a young soldier who, like them, is far away from home. The movie is directed by Morgan Matthews and stars John Bradley, Jenna Agutter, Sheridan Smith, Tom Courtenay, Hugh Quarshy, and others. So not a lot of huge names, but some familiar faces when it comes to acting. I don't know if I'm going to see this film, but if I do, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another film that is subject to being released in theaters on September 23rd is a movie that's called The Come Up, or excuse me, On The Come Up. It's a a story that centers on a 16-year-old girl by the name of Brie who wants to be one of the greatest rappers of all time. Facing controversies and with an eviction notice staring down her family, which makes me thankful for the problems that I have, Brie doesn't just want to make it, she has to make it. The movie is directed by Sanaa Lathan, who has been acting in movies and TV shows for the last 30 years. She is over 50 now. She's actually 51, and she still looks damn good, <laughs> if I do say so myself. Um, yeah, she's up there with Neil Long as actresses who just don't age for some reason. She is actually making her feature film directorial debut with On the Come Up, And the actors who star in this movie include uh, Sanaa Lathan herself, as well as Divine Joy Randolph, Method Man, Mike Epps. I almost said Mike Evans. Uh, I'm glad I didn't. But the the character of Brie, which is short for Brianna, is played by Jamila Gray, who, who I'm not exactly familiar with, but she's pretty and hopefully she is a good actress as well. So I hope this movie is coming out in a theater near me. I can't guarantee that it is, but if I do see it, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another film that is subject to being released in theaters on September 23rd is a film that is called Wicked Game, which looks like a film that might be released in a theater near me. It is an electrifying thrill ride that is unfolding with propulsive energy, unexpected twists, and breathtaking action. That's the synopsis that I'm given. The movie is directed by and written by Denny Blake, and I'm actually not given a cast list either, which means that this movie is probably not going to be playing in a theater near me. However, there, this movie might be. This movie, also subject to being released in theaters on September 23rd, is a movie that's called The Swearing Jar. Great name for a movie already. But this movie, begin, uh, the synopsis begins with a quote. It is a rare and miraculous thing to find your one true soulmate, end quote. Carrie soon learns that finding two of them can pose an even greater problem. So, yeah, this sounds interesting. It's directed by Lindsay McKay, and the poster for Smile came up on my computer screen, and that obviously gave me a jolt in my heart, which means that that damn movie is coming up. It's coming up soon. But anyway, about this movie, The Swearing Jar, the movie stars Adelaide Clemens, Douglas Smith, Patrick J. Adams, and Kathleen Turner. We haven't seen Kathleen Turner in quite some time, so I don't know if this film is coming out in theater near me. If it is, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. And I guess I'll just go with the rest of the films that are subject to being released in theaters because I don't have a ton of time left, but... Another movie that's that's subject to being released in theaters is a movie that's called Yakuza. This is the tale of a Yakuza, which is Japanese for gangster, who makes his way through the Japanese criminal underground. The movie is not directed by a Japanese person. It's actually directed by Chase Conley, who is, I believe, American. I'll have to look up his nationality right now. And the movie, uh, the site I'm looking at is not telling me what his nationality is. But I presume he's American. He may be British. But the movie uh, does not show me any stars, so it is unlikely this film will be released in a theater near me. But there's another film that is subject to being released in theaters on September 23rd, which is called My Imaginary Country. This debuted at the Cannes Film Festival 
in this year, 2022, and it's about protests that exploded onto the streets of Chile's capital of Santiago in 2019 as the population demanded more democracy and social equality around education, health care, and job opportunities. This sounds like a very fascinating movie, but the film is not giving me a roster of actors who are in it. I can tell you that the movie is directed by and written by Patricio Guzman, but I don't think the, the, um, oh, it's actually a documentary, interestingly enough. So my mistake, I thought it was a feature, um, fictional film or not a fictional film, but a dramatic film, i.e. one that has actors in it. But My Imaginary Country sounds like a fascinating movie, but I can't exactly say if it's coming out in a theater near me. But the last movie that is subject to being released in theaters on September 23rd is a movie that's called Nothing Compares, which is a documentary, and it's about Sinead O'Connor. It's about Sinead O'Connor's rise to worldwide fame and how her iconoclastic personality resulted in her exile from the pop mainstream, particularly when she went on SNL in 1992 and as the musical guest not only sang a very haunting rendition of the Bob Marley song War, which would have been great, but when she did it, she unexpectedly took a picture of Pope John Paul II and tore it into pieces right there on stage while afterwards saying, fight the real enemy. And her popularity plummeted when she did that. It not only got her banned from SNL, but it also alienated her as well. And I am very interested to see this film. It's not only subject to being released in theaters, it's also going to be making an appearance on Showtime, which I don't subscribe to even you know their streaming service. But it's very, I think, appropriate for this movie to be called Nothing Compares because it's named after Sinead O'Connor's breakout hit, which was actually written by and first performed by Prince. But Sinead O'Connor made it her own song, which is not very easy to do when Prince covered the song. But Nothing Compares is a movie I will eventually see, but probably not next week. That just about does it for this episode of Words on Film. Words on Film is the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures, and I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at WBCA or the station as a whole. Until I watch a whole bunch of brand new movies, this is Dan Burke saying I'll see you at the movies.